Welcome to Chain Reaction, the Foreign Policy Research Institute's flagship network of podcast series examining the political, security, economic, and social trends shaping Europe and Eurasia. Throughout the year, we're talking with experts about developments in Russia's war in Ukraine, the new European security order, the past, present, and future of the Baltic states, Russia's political economy, and great power competition in the region. Join us each month for Bear Market Brief, the understanding of, of Russia, which is broadly as Russia is a great power that has its own special path, that has a mission and that needs a strong state, you know, and, and a different path to that of the West. I think when you look at these other industries, what you find is that there's a lot of pain built up uh, in, in different parts of the Russian economy. Some of it's only to be felt over a longer period of time. Baltic ways. The countries that when the war started, they were willing to be, you know, those uh, voices of uh, moral conscience. The continent. I think that this conflict today proves that we are able to go past grievances and that we are able to look into the future, into the common future together. Report in short. This is the real Achilles heel of Putin's mobilization. And of course, our flagship chain reaction. These two countries are interacting militarily or have been interacting in several different conflicts. And in some cases, they're on the same side and in some cases, they're not. New episodes are available each week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week on the Bear Market Brief. Russia's war in Ukraine is arguably the most documented in history, and yet, behind the front lines and the headlines, a conflict of another kind has been brewing for over a decade. In his new book, Economic War, Ukraine and the Global Conflict Between Russia and the West, FBI fellow Max Hess turns back the clock to 2014, when Vladimir Putin's first invasion of Ukraine set off a global economic clash, as the Kremlin sought to challenge the international economic order, and the West responded by using its clout with international markets to deter and penalize Russia. Max stopped by FPRI in late September to speak with Bear Market Brief host Aaron Schwarzbaum about how Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022 has turned financial, food, and fuel markets into battlefields in their own right. They also discussed key lessons for economic relations between the West and China as the two diverge into rival spheres. The following is a recording of that conversation. Economic War is available for purchase in the description of this episode, and if you're interested in developing stories about the international economic order and the conflicts that are helping to shape it, you can also subscribe to Max's newsletter, Conflict and Credit, in the show notes below. If you haven't read the book yet, I highly recommend it. I had the pleasure to over the last week or so, and really brought me back, my mentions, the bear market brief, to some of the economic statecraft escapades and shenanigans that happened back when I was more active in the uh, the field as a practitioner on, on Eurasia. So let's kick this off. I'll let Max uh, turn it turn it over to him and we'll uh, hear about what is in this book. Cool. Uh, well, thank you all uh, so much. I look forward to um, discussing it and hopefully um, gaining some of your insights as well to help shape mine going forward. Um, but, you know, really, uh, I, I just want to lay out sort of what the book is about, what it attempts to do, and then sort of my framing and, and my view of the world. And so for that, you know, it's a bit of background. Um, in in uh, addition to uh, my role as fellow at FPRI, I uh, have long been a consultant in London in the political risk industry. 
Uh, and I run my own small political risk firm there, where my sort of real niche is working with the credit markets, whether that be trade finance, uh, sometimes hedge funds in special situations, um, um, and really often um, the insurance market, writing contract frustration, government credit uh, insurance, and what's known as political risk insurance. So I definitely, you know, come from a world of looking at things uh, in terms of money and politics, and uh, that certainly shaped my thinking, and I definitely have biases that come as a result of that. But anyway, the book tries to really answer two questions. Firstly, what is the reason that the macroeconomic implications of the first Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014 were comparatively small versus the uh, global macroeconomic implications of the war in uh, 2022 with the full-scale invasion. And secondly, to try to differentiate um, what I see and why I call this an economic war from some of the economic conflict that we've seen lately, in particular sort of the trade war uh, with China that's now been going on for uh, certainly uh, uh, at least six years. And one of the arguments that I make in the beginning and that I provide some points to evidence in the book and that um, sadly I have been thinking a lot about again recently in light of recent events in uh, Azerbaijan and Karabakh, which is that uh, I frankly don't believe there's any such thing as a rules-based order. But I do believe there's an international economic order um, that the U.S. in particular has a strong, uh, in fact, still dominant position um, in that order. And that this is something that um, Russia very much sees as um, not in its interest. And that since the beginning of this conflict, even before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Russia has tied its activity in Ukraine, where it was the first one to use sanctions and trade restrictions in 2013 uh, to pressure the Yanukovych government um, into joining or at least becoming an observer member of the Eurasian Economic Union. But it has also seen this as... Uh, part of its agenda in Ukraine. And the sort of beginning of the book, therefore, starts in 2013 uh, with a loan that the Kremlin gave to the Yadikovich government, which is structured in a way that essentially was legal, um, or British courts have at least ruled that it was prima facie legal, um, it's written under English law, uh, that challenged the fundamental structures of government credit markets and uh, essentially meant that if successful, this strategy would have uh, allowed the Kremlin to keep Ukraine in a bankrupt position uh, for a, a long time. Um, the bankers who held Ukraine's private debt did not go along with that, in part due to pressure from the US government. The uh, IMF ultimately had to change its rules to get around the Russian threat there to enable the IMF to support Ukraine um, after the revolution in 2014 and Russia's full-scale invasion. The book is then in two halves. The first half focuses on how this competition uh, between Russia and the West, and particularly Russian efforts, uh, spread globally from 2014 until 2022. And so there's separate sections on the Middle East, on Latin America, on uh, Europe, Eurasia, Africa. Uh, and then the second half of the book is really looking at the economic impact in um, 2022. Uh, the last part I'll say before we, we get to Aaron's questions are one important factor that I think um, hasn't had enough appreciation is uh, firstly, that the Kremlin realized that playing in the sort of system because of uh, U.S. Um, and Western power in that international economic order that it couldn't compete fairly and that it essentially decided to focus its efforts on uh, oil and gas, where it certainly had the strongest advantage. But one of the biggest changes we've seen from 2013 until 2022 is the globalization of gas markets. And now without liquefied natural gas, Europe would have been in a truly terrible place last year if there was none available. 
But one of the impacts of the global LNG market is that we now slightly less in the U.S. because we effectively have a glut of natural gas at home and not enough export facilities yet, although we're working on building them, even though we're already the world's largest uh, exporter of LNG uh, since last year, is that that market, just like oil prices are globalized, has become a globalized one. So in 2006 and seven, when there were the first big Russian-Ukrainian gas disputes over previous contracts, that impact had uh, nothing, no impact whatsoever on the gas price in China or say the United States or a country like Pakistan that was uh, particularly damaged as a result of this because of how much it had put in its stock in long-term LNG contracts last year. We see that just two weeks ago, workers went on strike in Australia, uh, um, which has only once ever shipped a natural gas cargo last year, in fact, um, to Europe. And uh, although they, although there's almost no direct supplies there, those two LNG facilities are worth 7% of global LNG. If um, that strike continues, the Chinese and uh, Japan will no longer be able to buy as much Australian gas. They'll buy more Qatari gas. There'll be less Qatari gas available to go to Europe, or at least the price will go up. Um, and the U.S., while we've already started to increase um, LNG exports, uh, just doesn't have enough yet to entirely fill that gap. Um, and I think Putin certainly saw intentionally driving up inflation, and I even have a chapter called The Inflation Weapon, as a core factor in trying to break uh, the Europe and Western alliance. In terms of that sort of international economic order, I believe in the last part that I'll sort of emphasize is there's been a lot of talk lately, and the Kremlin in particular has been very keen about building up a BRICS currency and coming up with an alternative to the dollar-dominated order. None of that is possible without a deficit market to put their savings into. Brazil, Russia, India, China, sadly, South Africa is an economic basket case, um, are all countries that run massive surpluses. The re there's a reason China is the number one holder of U.S. treasuries and, uh, and Japan number two, despite their entirely different um, economic approaches to us. And the real way for any strategy like BRICS or any other similar such effort to be successful in replacing the dollar, uh, which in turn would not only significantly weaken U.S. geopolitical power, uh, but also our uh, economic power and standard of well-being um, here in the United States, uh, and even you know the efficacy of sanctions and such, is if uh, they can essentially align with a substantially large enough deficit market to export their savings into. That doesn't appear likely to happen, but it's certainly we look at things going forward, whether that be just on the support for Ukraine and why it's in our national interest, even if one doesn't believe in the European security things and the things that sort of the more uh, isolationist uh, politicians in the U.S. have been talking about recently, why this is still very much, in my view, uh, in the national interest. And secondly, also very important for dealing with our relationship with Europe. If every single European country increased their uh, defense spending to 2% of GDP and the U.S. decreased ours by like eight, um, all of that increase would be gone. The deal that we have with Europe is that we provide the security guarantee in exchange. Europe remains part of uh, essentially the dollar system. And while trading within Europe is almost entirely in the euro now, 90% of European mm -hmm. trading internationally is still in the dollar. They don't challenge the dollar system even when we take action that they don't like, such as the unilateral withdrawal from the JCPOA. Um, you know, the, uh, the Europeans were very vehemently opposed to that, but have still gone along with it. And I think framing these things in terms of that order, um, one adds an element of understanding to why this conflict has had such geoeconomic um, geo ramifications in the last year alone, um, and then also part of what the fight is about um, going forward. Lots to cover, so really excited to be having this chat. We'll start kind of top of the funnel 
some of the rationale methodology and then we'll get into more of the content. So uh, just out of curiosity for, for the audience and then future listeners, tell us about how the book came together. Did something happen in the world? Um, yeah, well, the um, Russia obviously launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine uh, in uh, on the 24th of February last year. Uh, I do think it's very important to emphasize that Russia's war in Ukraine has been going on for uh, at least nine years now. Um, this was not a entirely new conflict, but certainly a dramatic escalation of the existing conflict. Then, of course, the real big economic component that started changing so much was uh, while Putin had been using using his gas uh, pressure on Europe, even in the lead up to the invasion, as it was being threatened, gas pipelines started being turned off as early as uh, September um, in 2021. Uh, it was clear that sort of that would become a tool. And that came as inflationary pressures were already beginning at the end of the COVID pandemic. Of course, the major measures were um, began on the 27th of February, three days later, when the full scale sanctions on Russia uh, came in. And specifically there, I mean, the cutting off of most Russian banks from SWIFT, the bank messaging system, uh, the international bank messaging system, the end of any correspondent banking relationships with Russia, uh, and of course, the sanctions on its central bank itself, um, freezing over $300 billion uh, in their assets and um, also effectively causing significant issues for the Kremlin and partnering um, with anyone else, whether that be European countries such as Hungary that were still willing to deal with it, or even its nominal partners such as China. Now, before we even get into the book itself, I wanted to ask about the cover, specifically the title. I want to interrogate something. So the choice of the word war mm. and economic, why are we calling this an economic war? Is this statecraft? Let's talk through the word. What, the... Uh, I think that Russia um, is trying to destroy the international economic order that exists. And that international economic order that we have is certainly a uh, U.S.-based one in which the U.S. has far more power than anyone else. Uh, what the former French president termed uh, the exorbitant privilege of the U.S., our ability to uh, borrow in and print dollars that no other country has, while the dollar effectively serves as the global reserve asset, right? Whether it be after the 2008 financial crisis, which was certainly something that uh, began in the United States, I'm not saying the United States alone was culpable, but certainly began out of our markets here, uh, or in the aftermath of, of the initial lockdowns in the COVID uh, pandemic, what do economic actors do? They have a flight to safety. Where does that same asset? They pile their money into U.S. treasuries. Um, the uh, ultimate benefit that the U.S. dollar gives uh, is significant, um, both in terms of how we run our own country and finance government spending and our, our military expenditure included, um, but also very important for the extraterritoriality of U.S. sanctions um, and making them uh, something that can um, have effect uh, in countries that uh, don't even nominally use the dollar. And the, the economic war component there, I really want to differentiate from, in particular, the trade wars with China that have happened uh, in recent years. I am not a China hand, I'm not a China expert, but broadly, my belief is that uh, China wants to be number one in the international economic order, but they're broadly happy with that order as it exists. China signs its own bilateral investment treaties, they sign up their own arbitration courts. I'm certainly not going to say that I think you'll get as fair a shake in a Shanghai-based arbitration court as you will in Paris or London. Uh, the Chinese would, of course, take a, a very different view on that. The Belt and Road is a structure that primarily actually uses a, a 
over 99% of Belt and Road loans are issued in U.S. dollars. As mentioned earlier, China is the world's largest holder of U.S. treasuries. We're essentially in a position of mutually assured destruction uh, in terms of China uh, on fighting a same full-scale economic war. There, the implications of sanctioning the Chinese central bank uh, in the same way that we have Russia's, if it were to come to that, uh, would, in my view, drive us into a, a global depression all around on both sides, uh, something that neither of us wants. Russia, on the other hand, I think actively wants to seek to destroy that international economic order. And I believe that there is not full alignment between Russia and China on these issues. And actually, the narrative that China is Russia's friend without limits is certainly not only overblown, but that in many ways, this war has even driven them further apart thus far. Putin wants three things from Beijing. Uh, at present. He wants a deal on the power of Siberia 2 pipeline, second natural gas pipeline. The first one was agreed just after 2014, after the first invasion, uh, to replace the loss of access to European markets. He wants new Chinese loans. Those have gone up 700% uh, in the last year, but there's still less than 10% of U.S. loans, uh, sorry, Western loans, uh, primarily European, but also American, um, at the height of uh, U.S.-Russian cooperation in 2013, 2012, uh, at least economic cooperation. And then finally, uh, the third thing he wants is direct military aid. China isn't giving um, Russia any of those things, at least not in significant amounts uh, quite yet. So, you know, I think that really speaks to that difference that, you know, right now China sees, for example, Russia's role in this economic war as more of a threat to its long-term agenda uh, to eventually be number one in the international economic order. And again, that doesn't mean to say that I want to live in an international economic order in which China is number one. Personally, I do not. Uh, but it is to say that we have a long-term competition with China going on. The trade war is about the spoils of that order as they exist now, uh, as that order exists now, whereas Russia's strategy is actively and certainly has been, in my view, since at least 2013, um, although Putin's complained about the dollar, the earliest public complaints I could find were back in 2004 uh, for a long time and featured in his Munich speech as well, but that Russia is far more aggressively trying to destroy that order far more rapidly and that uh, I'm not saying that that is the causes belly for him in his mind to go into Ukraine, um, but that that is part of the future of this conflict and that uh, if Russia is successful, that threat will um, be far more acute than it ever has been, uh, except for when we occasionally shoot ourselves in the foot in the US. <laughs> so I guess following up there, channeling some international relations theory, would you say then your belief is that Russia is a revisionist power? Yes. Um, yeah, I think I would. You know, I think that the Kremlin's anger over uh, this order and decide to really readapt it began in 2012. Uh, you know, Putin certainly had these inklings before, but uh, the m misunderstanding um, between Russia and the United States, particularly in 2012, with uh, the sort of story that, that I highlight is, many of you may be familiar, uh, Bill Browder has written a number of books about his time in Russia and the passage of the Magnitsky Act in 2012. Now, the Magnitsky Act was actually originally passed um, as part of legislation to repeal the Jackson-Vanik Amendment, which had introduced sanctions on the Soviet Union. Um, as the Soviet Union was not allowing uh, Jewish citizens to emigrate, and Russia inherited those as, as um 
some other subsequent legislation as well, but really inherited them as the successor state to the Soviet Union. We had, of course, the reset under the Obama administration and then Secretary of State Clinton uh, during that time. And in the middle of all this, of course, what happened to Browder, in particular his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, who was um, almost certainly murdered in, in a Russian jail cell uh, for trying to uncover the way that his assets were stolen uh, was a tragedy. But at the time, Putin... Uh, this legislation was passed over the Obama administration's um, suggestions. They opposed it initially. And Putin very strongly said, if they go on like this, uh, they'll keep slapping us forever and we have to do something about it. And that, of course, is uh, also when Magnitsky was then in what is still, as far as I'm aware, um, uh, a unique case in Russian history, posthumously <laughs> died in Moscow, although he had died in a number, most likely been murdered a number of years earlier. And that is also then when that first um, the idea behind that loan uh, to Ukraine that really essentially tried to mess with the order as it existed and give Russia outsides leverage over it um, began. As things went on, certainly the sanctions used um, the U.S.'s position in that power uh, to try to hold Russia to account even more. But the Kremlin saw that as even more of an abuse. And then ultimately, when the threat of that loan was diffused, and this gets exactly to the point about rules-based versus economic order, uh, it was changed because the IMF changed its rules. Now, the IMF, who I asked multiple times, and, you know, uh, I always am keen to note that the IMF and World Bank are the only two UN institutions that are based in D.C., right, not in New York or Geneva, again, speaks to the U.S. centrism of, of that order. Um, the IMF firmly insists that this had nothing to do uh, with that loan, uh, that it changed its rules to enable it to continue to uh, loan to Ukraine. And then I point out to them, I said, yes, but instead of your five working languages this time around, you only published it in English and Russian. And then they go, oh, um, so I'm not saying. <laughs> definitely changed their rules. They insist that they didn't, but, uh, you know, my view says, but also my view is that that was the right thing to do, you know, and that we shouldn't always say that, um, you know, everything needs to be in, in, in the rules-based order, because then we end up very hypocritical, because, for example, we do nothing about the tragedy in Karabakh. But, uh, you know, Russia's, in my view, complaint, although the rules-based order gets thrown around by them, is something that they certainly make fun of um, and, and don't believe in. I think they're acutely aware of the structure of this international economic order. And, you know, you know, I also try to mention in there, and, and there was a very good biography of Putin that I drew on a lot that came out just last year, which is you also have to remember Putin is, of course, a former KGB man, but his specialty in the 1990s, uh, first at the university, Leningrad University in St. Petersburg, and then in the mayoralty, was actually dealing with economic relations. And Putin sat on the board of a Russian company that had an IPO in 1995, uh, which is years before even many of the very well-known oligarchs that we you know call oligarchs today um, began getting in that business. So um, the idea that the Russians and that Putin's regime are not competent players and don't have a good understanding of this is certainly a myth that I seek to challenge. Um, but yes, you know, ultimately their, their aim is, is to, to redraw things. I don't think they have an actual structure for how they would like things to work. And in a world that was dominated by China in this matter, they would ultimately end up with many disagreements. <laughs> um, but they certainly think that destroying the order as it exists now is, is better for them. Let's uh, veer towards a little more levity with this this next question. You had in your book a lot of episodes, shenanigans, tomfoolery, if you call them different economic moments in policy. 
Um, with respect to the book and also with respect to UK libel laws, what were your favorite <laughs> anecdotes that you did not include? In oh, book? Um, I mean, definitely the, I mean, one of the ones that was most sort of shocking to me and it was very early in my career was in 2014, uh, two weeks after um, uh, the United States sanctioned Igor Sechin, the head of the Russian state oil company, kind of by mistake, I got invited to this meeting that he organized in Germany um, by a German banker that was actually meant for the head of the firm that I was working for. And I was like, oh, well, I would love to come to this, please. And literally, you know, the leading lights of German business, the head of Goldman Sachs in Germany, the head of Germany largest steel company all these people this guy who had been two weeks ago put under u.s sanctions were there to shake his hand um uh lapped it up were so sort of eager to hear it. they did say you know, some of his suggestions to build giant new nuclear power plants in kaliningrad the former Königsberg, the russian exclave between um poland and lithuania were perhaps a bit ambitious but they were nonetheless <laughs> still um uh willing to hear him out um and i still have all the documents from uh that meeting and all these you know wonderful things that lost I've handed out. And the one thing that really shocked me uh, was that they gave out USB sticks um, and were like, okay, now bring up the presentations on your computer because we don't have a screen here. It was at this villa outside Berlin. And literally the head of like every single one of these German companies was like, boom. Um, and I was just sitting there like, oh my God. Uh, so that was definitely um, a particular uh, favorite anecdote that didn't quite make it in. And then another one that, that didn't make it in, but that I'm very happy to share with you guys is sort of uh, you know, our listeners, the story of the yacht on the cover, which is uh, that is um, a good friend of mine, one of the people who first got me interested in, in Russia and Ukraine. And I'm, I'm just in this format, I won't say his name, but I'll ask me later if you want. Um, his uh, father was a very um, prominent Russian businessman who is still not sanctioned, uh, who played a leading role in building one of the largest infrastructure projects currently being used in the war. And uh, when we were 18 years old, we were in school together. And I think that, you know, for graduation, um, we, I was at school in Europe. Um, we decided to go together as a group to um, Spain. Uh, and, you know, I think my graduation present was the EasyJet tickets uh, to get there. Got that yacht. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so he, he knows that the, his yacht is on the cover and thinks that's very funny. Um, uh, but yeah, that was sort of my introduction to, oh, my God, this is really an, an entirely different world. So relating to the yacht, I think that's actually a great segue. This came up in the book, the Western fixation, I guess you could call it with oligarchs as like, this is how we're going to get Putin. We're gonna appeal to the oligarchs or pressure them, turn the screws. Why do you think they get so much attention to this day as like a tool for policy or target for it? Um, I mean, well, f I'll, I'll answer that first and then I'll go into one other bit about sanctions that I think is particularly important, but because they have big yachts and those are easy to see in there. You know, I mean, in the UK, the, um, um, one of the government ministers, there was a Russian yacht uh, that happened to be in London at the beginning of the war, not a normal big time yachting destination, but it was having some special equipment installed. Uh, and the individual who's the owner actually has successfully sued because he hadn't been in Russia for many years to sort of get his yacht back uh, and everything. But it was great image for the cameras that, you know, three days after the war, you had this British minister standing down there in the docks in, in East London uh, saying, well, we got the yacht. Um, of course, many of the uh, Russian oligarchs have been instruments of uh, the Kremlin and its political influence for 
many years. You know, one of the ones uh, particularly strong example was sanctioned, and then ultimately there was a deal made under the Trump administration, uh, which also did the sanctioning of him um, to to remove them. Oleg Deripaska, his company Rusal, uh, has been very actively involved in a number of Russian sort of state influence efforts uh, from Guinea to Guyana, both. Uh, Key, key countries for the uh, aluminium aluminum supply. Um, <laughs> uh, oligarchs, however, don't really have any influence in Russia anymore. And it's important to say, you know, one of the big differences I think we've learned and changes in, in at least appreciation and understanding is sanctions do not work as a tool to dissuade a country um, from pursuing a certain foreign policy path. Right, there's been <laughs> sanctions on Cuba for how seventy years now. North Korea too. Uh, their governments still are not going to do things that we like. But sanctions really do work as a tool of war by other means uh, and targeting that state's capacity. And um, I mean, even today, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently about oh, the Russians have done effort to try to get get around the G7 oil price cap. Um, there are ways I think that cap can be updated, and then I've been trying to do some work on on with policymakers to to shape those decisions because I telling them it's far more about enforcement if you lower the cap. I know plenty of people I've worked with, plenty of commodities traders, they will just see that as a larger chance to make money and they'll happily set up corporate structures in Hong Kong, on through Labuan, on through St. Kitts and Nevis, on through a whole bunch of places you can never find out. So, um, you know, for for me, you know, really focusing on the understanding of sanctions there is really important. But finally, the oligarchs who do really matter and certainly one of the main characters in, in the book i think um is that individual that i met in uh, berlin igor sechin uh, i have a very when i went to russia you know still in the intervening years before 2022 i always saved the photo that i had with him just in case anything went wrong and <laughs> once or twice it did you know once or twice we you know it was you know, stopped by a police officer or something and i was with russian friends and i was like watch this and then, oh, you're good. Um, uh, and um, um, so, you know, you, you have that sort of new quasi-state oligarch, but they are also the ones who, yes, I mean, Lavrov's, you know, daughter was famously in London, plenty of the others who uh, are from that group of friends that Putin has from the 90s. You know, far, and, and that's another point about the economic understanding, right? Far more of the individuals very close around Putin, the ones ultimately in charge of the security services, tend to, uh, there are a few guys who he worked with in his KGB era, um, but whether it be Medvedev, who was his lawyer in the 90s, or Sechin, who was his chief of staff, in his St. Petersburg office, you know, far more of those guys are, are ones who sort of did business with him. Even, you know, Prigozhin, allegedly, that's the start of their relationship there. Uh, so, um, you know, th those all, I th but those oligarchs also don't, uh, I mean, Suleiman Kerimov, one of the other oligarchs sanctioned in 2018, has been in and out of the European tabloids for decades, famously wrapped his Ferrari around the light pole um, in, uh, I can't remember if it was in Monaco or Nice, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago with the host of a Russian television station, you know, so they're easy and to understand. Whereas when you talk about issues like, you know, swift restrictions, why does it matter that one or two Russian banks are still outside of them? What does the correspondent banking restrictions mean? Um, those are all things that are, you know, often very hard to sell to voters and, and, and even hard for, you know, many legislators, legislators who don't have a background in them to um, get their mind around. Whereas, you know, boom, big, bad oligarch can't spend his money anymore is, is easy. Makes sense. Um, let me ask you one more question. Once to ask related to sanctions, and you mentioned some of the measures that have been taken, how do you assess their impact on Russia? And how do you assess broadly if they're working? 
are you guys willing to have a slightly politically incorrect um, description of it? Um, so again, this is a quite grotesque one and I apologize for that, but I just don't think there's a better way to do it. I think the simplest way to understand it is that uh, the Russian um, economy has HIV as a result of the sanctions. Now it's oil and gas wealth mean that it effectively has the best antiretrovirals. Um, so it has not turned into full blown AIDS. Um, is that impact still something that is terminal? Ultimately, most likely, yes. Does that the Russian living standards and um, sort of the quality of goods the average Russian can purchase because still never gone back to its 2013 level? Can the Kremlin survive as an autarky uh, moving increasingly away to just sort of cap, you know, capitalist appearances um, in the long term? A hundred percent. I don't think there will be as many private uh, metals companies and oil companies in, in, in Russia in the future um, under the system. But of course, the Soviet Union survived under a complete basket case, uh, a target economy for 70 years. Um, the idea that sanctions are going to immediately um, cause the Russian economy to, to be destroyed. I don't believe any of the Russian figures. I know a lot of Russian entrepreneurs, businessmen, children of oligarchs, those who have left have, uh, you know, are the smart uh, entrepreneurial ones. They've all left. Uh, the ones who, for family reasons and the like, can't stay. None of them have any plans to invest in anything new. Uh, military Keynesianism is a sort of temporary framework to understand that in boost, but certainly not something that's going to replace Russia's productive growth without significant additional Chinese um, support. They will not have the investment in their economy in the long term and Russia, which is, you know, for example, already primarily a bunch of brownfield sites, um, you know, industrial production in, within Russia alone, not just talking about the Soviet borders, has never actually gotten back to the heights of the Soviet system. Um, but yes, it, it can survive a, a, a very long time, but it is still not a healthy body. I lied. I have one more question. Yeah. Then, we'll open, then we'll open it up. Um, it came up today in our discussion before the discussion, extraterritoriality and parties, uh, partners, countries that may not deal a lot in dollars, don't necessarily have an interest in or don't share the Western interest in the outcome of Russia's war in Ukraine. We've seen, as far as I've heard, Chinese financial institutions, some state entities not really play ball with Russia the way Russia would want. We saw Kazakhstan's president today in Germany say that they're going to go along with the sanctions regime. Why? Well, China certainly has enough touch points uh, with the U.S. financial system. And uh, so the big one is, of course, the BRICS Bank, which was constituted after this war began in 2014, now known as the New Development Bank. Um, uh, it has uh, suspended issuing new loans and suspended paying out on old loans in <laughs> Russia, um, despite all of Russia's talk about the BRICS. And that's precisely because the risks to them are too great because of the global influence of that dollar system. For Kazakhstan, I think it's very much about a, a signaling effort. I do not think that this means that Tokayev, even if he truly wants to, has the state capacity to go and crack down on everybody setting up a small company. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is, is effectively going to be, um, uh, you know, they sort of play three-card Monty with the corporate structures, right? And they'll set up a new one, they'll hide it, it'll, it'll get moved. You know, a lot of sanctions, in not saying we shouldn't whack the moles, but it's playing whack-a-mole, right? They'll still set up a new one. Um, for Kazakhstan in particular, I mean, Kazakhstan has real Russian dependencies, right? Uh, over 75% of Kazakh oil still gets shipped through Russia. Uh, in the long term, they're hoping they're just agreed in May to build a new Chinese pipeline. Um, but Kazakhstan also is a country that really borrows from the Western markets that if something horrible does happen, 
struggling with that oil situation. Um, I mean, yes, they have a sovereign wealth fund whose assets maybe aren't as liquid as they say they are, um, but that would look to the IMF and one of these Western institutions for support. Um, a sort of another interesting case that's also had sanctions compliance failures uh, in the past with allowing Iranians to set up companies is uh, Tajikistan. And there, I think it gets to the sort of point that we're very good at using the stick of sanctions, but the Tajiks, whose main economic contributor is um, remittances from Russia uh, and who you know see China as their primary partner, um, they're not integrated enough into this economic order to care, you know, keep sanctioning small Tajik companies fine. Yes, the president and his family through the Cayman Islands control and now a local company called Talco. They'd probably care if that got hit, so they're not going to use sanctions there. But I also don't think we will because of how important it is for employment in that country, which is you know, already a huge issue. Um, but in, in some ways, you know, not only am I an advocate of using um carrots because I think they do things certain other moves can't do. Turkey is the example I talk about in the book a lot that, you know, very much has um, one foot in both doors uh, that I think, you know, the approach of using sticks against Turkey is not going to be successful. There are signs we are starting to use carrots there. I mean, very quietly last month. And again, this is the kind of thing that doesn't make news like sanctioning a company does. Yeah, that always gets on the you know New York Times deal. Yeah. Is uh, that uh, the World Bank is talking, which is the, uh, the Biden administration is talking about providing additional funding to, is also in talks to double its loan book from 15 to 30 billion dollars in Turkey. Um, and I think that's exactly the kind of carrot we should use for countries like Tajikistan and places that are sort of on the edge of the order, particularly those in Central Asia. And of course, I'm very interested in Central Asia and, and um, boosting our relations there. Um, but, you know, through offering them carrots, we can get them more interested in this order, right? And that we can therefore make the costs to them um, of future sanctions violations higher. So right now that, you know, I just don't think Emamahi Rahman cares. Um, I don't think Japarov in Tajikistan and you know, Kyrgyzstan has been uh, the Kyrgyz Republic, sorry, um, who's been, uh, you know, increasingly moving away from the West really cares about those things. Tajikistan is a particularly interesting case because they have a very large loan coming due in 2027 that they literally have 0% chance of repaying. Um, you can bet against it in the markets if you want free advice. I do that. Uh, it's very expensive. <laughs> um, um, but uh, the... Um, my advice might change if the U.S. government actually listened to my position and said that, you know, maybe we should offer them carrots to go um, uh, and, and do something about that. But instead, the only one who's probably going to be interested in doing it is China. Uh, I'm not saying that that means Rahman's regime is a good one or, you know, one that um, I have any kind of sympathy for. It's a highly kleptocratic one and the like, but um, we need to make them care and be um, interested in why this conflict is so important. And that's, you know, also something that, you know, at its most ambitious um, I hope the book achieves is improving the understanding of this order, um, because as I said at the beginning, that essential deal that we have uh, with um, the European Union, in my view, and in the European countries, um, is one that we're very bad at understanding, and whether that be threats on the right to, um, you know, essentially nuke NATO and, and weaken that, um, or it be on the left where, you know, now some of the Build Back Better and Green Administration program, those are causing real concern in places like Germany about, um, you know, the potential that they're essentially taking business away. And we need to have a better understanding of the um, 
political economic alliance uh, that we have and the benefits that it has for everybody. And again, the U.S. has often used its um, hegemony in the economic order for ways that I personally disagree with and other, certain other sanctions programs um, and, and others. But I think the system that we have is one that um, ultimately has benefited many people and driven growth tremendously. And there is nothing worse for a world economy than um, if a reserve currency gets destroyed and replaced with nothing. And, you know, think about that in sort of the classic IR our framing, right? You know, um, a uh, incredibly multipolar world where everybody's fighting for each other is a very dangerous one. And that same thing applies to economic competition as well. Thanks for joining us. And thank you to Max and Aaron for this special episode. Bear Market Brief is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, that's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank in Philadelphia. For more information about this initiative and many others, be sure to visit us at fpri.org.